ามอ I'm not sure if I'm free to announce them but uh, probably most of you know that Michael is pregnant Michael and Ben will by God's grace be uh, bringing a new life into the world sometime in March and uh, my free to to say the other one I guess I'll just be quiet and but there is another pregnancy also <laughs> I guess you'll just have to talk to somebody in the know after the service so you find out who it is. Um, and it's very interesting as we think about evangelism to realize that always the principal method that God has used to grow His church is the birth of children. That evangelism starts in the church in the home, and so when we have fruitful marriage beds. Uh, we're not just doing something that is uh, recreation, as America sees it, but for Christians, it is propagating a godly seed, and God is pleased with that. And uh, it takes a lot of work. Everybody that's had children know that raising children isn't easy. Uh, I was thinking about uh, I was thinking about the other pregnancy this morning, and thinking that that one. I was thinking about that one being the addition to a family that already has a number of children, and I was remembering back. Now I've limited it, so it's, it's getting narrowed down. But I want to tell you, it is not the Wegners. <laughs> Tim's greatly relieved to hear that. <laughs> But I was thinking how, when I was younger. Um, Children show us our selfishness in a way that nothing else does, and I was remembering as we kept having children, the sort of sense that you have children not because you aren't selfish, but because you are selfish. And any of you that have uh, a lack of faith in having children, um, I won't tell you that it's killed my selfishness at all, but I will tell you that it has worked on it. And so, children are part of the sanctification that God gives us. And uh, one of the sadnesses in Africa, actually, is how many mature Christians have a diffident or uh, uh, somewhat uh, less than biblical view of having children. And if you want to understand Africa, just think: what would it be if you exported American culture to a na- to a to a continent that is completely immersed in poverty? And that is largely a good way to understand Africa. We're exporting all of our sins and all of our errors and all of our lies to Africa. And so, if you get a chance to teach in Africa, what you have to teach is exactly what you have to teach in the United States, but in a different time frame. And uh, well, this morning, um, I hope I have much more opportunity for uh, in, in our family. To speak of our trip, I do want to tell you that we send or we bring the greetings of David and Terry Ann and Elizabeth and Mary and Sarah and John. 
in Zambia. We spent two weeks with them and they're doing very well. Um, they will be home for 12 to 14 months starting this next August. And so we'll have them in our midst. And one of the things that really sort of came home to me more as I was over there was thinking how much we need housing for missionaries. And uh, if any of you are in a position to do this, build a duplex, build a house. We've got tons of land to do it. And glorify God by having a home. Mom and Dad Taylor for many years had a home right next to theirs that was called the missionary home. And that's where missionaries lived. And, and, and so... Uh, as you think about David and Terry Ann coming home, think, well, they're going to be living here. They need a place to stay. So if God has given you the ability, build the home and uh, begin to share that home with the missionaries. They have money. They can pay for it. Maybe you'll give them a break and they won't pay everything that they might at another place. But uh, love the missionaries. David and Terry Ann send their love, their greetings. Um, if I were to tell you the prayer requests from their home, I would say the principal prayer request, if I were, if, if I were suggesting one, is um, I would pray that they are good stewards of their opportunity to have contact with Zambians, not with other missionaries, but with Zambians. They have a growing uh, freedom to... Uh, and you don't take this for granted, because there are missionaries who are not looked to by the local people. But David is increasingly, and Terry both, are having opportunities to have people into their home, to go and teach in uh, leadership training things in churches down at the Capitol. So pray that the Lord will give them a growing sensitivity to what it means to be a Zambian and that God will use their godliness uh, and I, somebody asked me, my brother asked me yesterday whether I thought David was uh, missionary material. In other words, is he, is he doing well? Is this what he's made to do? And I said, yes, I, I, I think David and Terry Ann are exactly where they should be and that it's a perfect fit. And you can often, you cannot say that about missionaries. But in the case of David and Terry Ann, there's no question in my mind that they are where God has been preparing them to be. We also visited Brian and Vivian Daub up in Carlisle, uh, UK, which is right on the border of Scotland. And uh, they also are missionaries we support. They work with Operation Mobilization. And we had a wonderful visit with them for about three days. Um, our favorite time of our whole trip was a day we spent with them. If you look on the blog on the web, you'll see the picture taken from that day. And it was in the Lake District, climbing the fells, which is what they call large hills. And uh, it was a wonderful visit with them. And uh, I'll tell you more about that later, but Brian and Vivian are doing well. And then we also did have time, Mary Lee and the children, with Grant and Deb Olson. And they went to Budapest while I was down with the mission trip to Kigali, to Rwanda. And they would also tell you that Grant and Deb are doing well. Um, without any warning, just say a couple of things. I don't know which whether he wants to do up a stand. 
Uh, I know Grant is going to actually be back in the States uh, later this week, so, and I know he's, you know, going around making a trip to raise some additional funds to support their family, so I think that he's going to spend at least a couple of days here in Bloomington, so I'm sure that some of you will have an opportunity to see Grant and hear firsthand what he's involved with, but they continue to feel like the Lord led them to the exact perfect fit for his gifts, um, and they have a lot of opportunity to do two things. One is be a support to other missionaries there in Budapest. There's just a real need for support, you know, emotional and spiritual support for the missionary families themselves. A lot of people do not stay on the field um, because they lack that support. They just don't have what it, you know, they just need more, so they end up going back home. So Grant and Deb, uh, it's probably no surprise to any of you here, have a lot of people into their home encouraging other missionaries, but they also have a lot of opportunity to uh, interact with the Hungarians. They're still really working on the language. It was fun to, you know, be in a restaurant with them and hear them, you know, struggling to, you know, not only just order the food, but be friendly and warm to the waiter. Um, they, you know, have their neighbors, next door neighbors over for meals. They, they do have a lot of opportunity uh, to minister to the Hungarians, but they are doing well and I'll miss all of you and I do bring greetings from them. Then we also, as a family, had a week in England. We um, went down near Portsmouth, which is where the Navy is and where Admiral Nelson's ship is. And we got to tour Admiral Nelson's uh, HMS Victory. Is that? Yeah, that's the name of it. And, uh, and that was a fun time. We were out in the country. And then uh, there were other things we did. Um, I think probably for me, the highlight of my trip was spending time with church leaders in Zambia and in Rwanda, pastors, elders, and deacons. Um, and I had a fair number of opportunities to meet with them, with David and then alone in Rwanda. And uh, I'm sure this will come out in my preaching and teaching and my talking to you. Um, we did have one Sunday in London where in the morning we went to Spurgeon's Tabernacle and in the evening we went to St. Paul's Cathedral. And uh, it's like, you know, opposites. Um, gilded gold, all the words pronounced as a proper uh, Oxbridge person would pronounce them at St. Paul's. God! You know, everything was, it seemed to be uh, very affected at St. Paul's. Um, as opposed to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Pastor Masters um, was completely devoid of any affect. Uh, there, was, <laughs> there was the very opposite of flashy. There was no gilt, no gold, no, no large ceilings. Um, but the Word of God was present in power in the Met Tabernacle. Um, one curious thing is when, when Pastor Masters pronounces the benediction, uh, this is how he does it. He puts his hand over his eyes, he bows, and he says, Now may the grace, mercy, and peace. I just thought, I wonder where that comes from. If any of you know, tell me. I didn't get a chance to ask him. You know, I'm used to seeing this, you know. Um, the most encouraging thing about that church was that I would guess 
well over 75% of the people that attend, there were about 600 people there when we were there, are Asian, Black, African, or uh, English, or um, Indian. And when you look at the congregation, there are, there are almost no white faces. And that was a great encouragement to me. In one sense, it's discouraging to think of how, you know, a century later, there, there are few British white people who are in church. And that's the reality about England. But on the other hand, to see how God is making the last first. And they are now feeding at the table of the Lord there. Anyhow, enough on this. Uh, there will be much more. Let's go and hear what God has to say to us from his word. I'd like you to turn this morning. Uh, the, the, the title of our sermon is The Eunuch Went on His Way Rejoicing. It's from Acts chapter 8. If you would open up your Bibles there, please. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 25, reading through verse 40. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And so he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, if you look at the book of Acts, and some of us have done it before, uh, years back, you see that Acts is divided up into 
uh, a historical account of how the command that Jesus and the Holy Spirit gave the early apostles was actually fulfilled by those apostles. That uh, when Jesus in Acts 1.8 gave the Great Commission, he said, you will be my witnesses. And then he gave locations. He said, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, in the first few chapters, you see, of course, it's starting in Jerusalem. You see, for instance, the first sermon of the Christian church being the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches in Jerusalem. And so it starts in Jerusalem. And then if you look at the beginning of our text, you look at verse 25. It says that what? They started back Jerusalem and they were what? Preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, you remember who the Samaritans were. They were uh, sort of a, a polyglot, a, a mongrel, mixed breed of Jews and of other nations. And they were despised by the Jews and they in turn despised the Jews. And so anytime we see uh, in Scripture a statement about Gentiles, about the Samaritans, we have to understand that that creates a conflict in the church and in the hearts of Christians and it especially creates a conflict in the hearts of the Jews because the uh, process of the church coming into the Samaritan lands and then going out to the Gentiles is a process that's deeply threatening and largely hated by the Jews because it, it begins to eat away at their national identity and their feeling of purity. So we see that that's the beginning of this account that God is, in fact, causing his apostles, Jewish apostles, to be faithful to the command to start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and Samaria. And then we see that this account really is sort of the, the turning point in the book of Acts where the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. Here we see in Acts 8, beginning with verse 26, God's Holy Spirit leading a black man of the continent of Africa to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. He was from the country of Ethiopia, which is part of the country that has so many problems in Africa now, Sudan, um, on the east coast of Africa. And here we find a man who is seeking peace with God and who finds that peace on a desert road, and who carries the gospel of Jesus Christ back with him into Africa. Again, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, let's ask the question in two parts today. First, how did God's Spirit bring the sinner into the new birth, being born again into faith in Jesus Christ? How did God accomplish this wonderful work? And then second, what was the result of this wonderful work of God? First then, how did God carry out this wonderful work? Or another way of asking it is, what tools did he use? Well, right off the bat, notice that God began his work by sending an angel to one of his servants. Sometimes if you speak on hospitality in the church... You'll have people quote a very precious verse to those who have the gift of hospitality or who are obedient in that area from Hebrews where it says that those who have practiced hospitality have often entertained angels unaware. I often thought about this as a hitchhiker. I never thought I was an angel. 
But it, I used to meditate on the fact that some people who do pitch up hitchhikers are not just simply making an appearance in, in the Urban Legends uh, website, but are actually picking up angels when they pick up a hitchhiker. And they're blessed by that, by that action. Some of you that have had people into your home, you thought you knew who they were, but they were actually angels and you were unaware of it. I can think of some of them. <laughs> I'm not sure they're angels, but some of them have the attributes of angels. Well, here we have an angel engaging in work on behalf, in behalf of God, and the work is to go and to speak to a man named Philip, telling Philip that God wanted him to do something. God began his work by sending an angel to one of his servants. And so from the very beginning, we know that Philip knew absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt what it was that he was supposed to do. Because an angel came and told him. Now, what did the angel tell him? Well, in verse 26, it says, The angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, you can't claim that this is a little bit imprecise, a little cloudy, a little fuzzy. Hard to exactly discern the will of God. We know what the will of God is, don't we? The will of God is that he's supposed to get off. That he's supposed to get up, let me put it that way. And he's to go somewhere. And if you wonder where, it's south to the road. And if you wonder what road, it's the desert road. And if you wonder which desert road, it's the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip didn't know anything other than that God wanted him to get up and go to the desert road. It reminds you of the command that Abraham got, where God said to Abraham, get up and go. And in his case, he was to go to a place that God would show him. All right. Philip didn't know anything other than that God wanted him to go to the desert road. And it is true that still today, often God tells us no more than that. He tells us to get up and to go. And we don't know any more than Philip knew. Now, if you put yourself in Philip's shoes and you think, what might he have been doing? Well, he might have been watching a soccer game on television. He might have just been invited to have a guest appearance at a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, he might have been in the middle of a fight with his wife. He might have just flipped his hay and it was dry and it was going to rain in 24 hours and he needed to bail it. Now, obviously, none of these things are true of Philip. But you get the idea. We just assume that everybody in Scripture is obedient because it's convenient to be obedient. Well, you can bet that as with us, so with Philip, it was inconvenient for him to be obedient. And if you put yourself in his mind, you can think of some of the questions he would have had. You know, uh, saying to the angel, but really, uh, what do you want me to out in the desert for? There's a revival going on here in Samaria. Things are going well. The church is growing. You don't want me to just pick up and leave here, do you, Lord? I could understand if you're sending me to a large city where I could have an even greater ministry than I have here in Samaria. But why on earth are you wasting my time and talents going out into the desert? I mean, what is the desert? It is a place where no one is. Isn't this a waste? There are any number of reasons why Philip could have complained, indeed, why he could have justified disobedience in this matter, but we read in verse 27 that following the angel's command, Philip started out. 
And so, you know, the obvious question I will ask it is, when God gives you a marching order, do you obey or do you make excuses like Jonah made excuses so he would not have to go preach God's judgment to Nineveh? Now, you might say God's never sent me an angel. And so then I ask, well, do you mean to say that God has never clearly spoken directly to you and told you something to do? And, you know, this is one of the challenges for those of us who refer to our theology as reformed. Because, you know, we're so focused on trying to protect the exclusive authority and inspiration of the word that we end up denying that God does actually speak to us. But I know he speaks to us because he has spoken to me. And I know a bunch of you that he has actually spoken to. And so the question comes, no matter how God does it with you, through a dream, through an angel, through a very clear message that you have a hard time describing how it comes to you, God does speak to us and give us direction still today. And the question is, when he does that, are you obedient or you come up with a bunch of excuses about why what God wants you to do is really not as effective as what you've thought through? My father, I've mentioned before, used to spend his life going from campus to campus speaking to students. And he said that the most frequent request that he had as he spoke in campuses was that he would speak on the will of God. And so he spent his time going from campus to campus speaking on the will of God. When he was older, he said that he had changed his mind. If he had it to do over again, he would never, ever speak on the will of God. Because the older he got, the more convinced he was that what Scripture says is true, that when we desire to know the will of God, we always know it. That God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, that He does give wisdom to those who ask, that He makes His will known. And I have to admit myself, and I, I, I assume this is true for many of you, that the real problem with the will of God is that it's not our will. It's not that we don't know it, but it's that we know it and don't like it. And so I want you to put yourself in Philip's shoes and I want you to think, what would it have been like to be told to go out into the desert when you're in the middle of a revival in Samaria? And I want you to admit that this would not be an easy thing to obey. Philip did obey. Now I want you to think about something else. What would have happened if Philip had not obeyed? And you say, well, that's a stupid question. He does obey. And so what's the point of asking it? Well, I want you to think, what is at stake with your obedience? And again, this is a very uncomfortable thing for those of us who are reformed. Because what we want to think is, well, if God has decided to set grace on a person and to give them the gift of faith, it will happen inevitably. It doesn't matter whether Philip is obedient or not. Well, does it really not matter? Is that the way God's authority and power work? That it doesn't matter what human beings do? I don't think it's impious or unbiblical for us to ask the question, when we have refused to obey God by speaking to someone who is lost, when we have refused to invite them into our home and loved them at our table, refused to feed them, refused to pick them up in our car when they're hitchhiking, okay? when we refuse to do this, are there consequences that harm other people? And you want to say, well, no, because God will have his way. And I say, so in other words, God doesn't use people when it doesn't matter whether we're obedient or not. Isn't that sweet? I mean, isn't that a convenient thing to believe? You know, God will be God. And therefore, it doesn't matter if I'm disobedient. Right? Is that how it works when we speak of God's authority, his sovereignty? No, it's not how it works. 
There are real consequences to disobedience. If Philip had not obeyed, there would have been real consequences in that situation. You say, but he did obey. I say, well, shouldn't it make us even more grateful for Philip's obedience that he did obey? Thinking what it would have meant had he not obeyed. One of the problems we have when we read Scripture is that we know how the stories come out. And so we always just sort of jump over the act of obedience and we say, well, you know, here's what's going to happen. Praise God, Philip was obedient. Well, remember, Philip had a choice. God gave him a command. He had a choice. When God gives us commands, we have a choice. We can be obedient. We can be disobedient. Yes, God will have his way. But our disobedience does really cause suffering to other people. It really does attack the glory of God. When we don't care about people outside the boundaries of our church family, it really does have consequences. It really doesn't honor God. It really wouldn't have honored God if Philip had said, I'm busy. And so what happens? Philip is obedient. He gets up, he goes out into the wilderness, and wonder of wonders, he comes on a man who is doing uh, what in Hebrews it tells us God always rewards, which is he must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so here we see a man who was powerful, who was wealthy, uh, who was a a leader uh, by any measure of the time, uh, and who had traveled a long, long way in order to go to the place where the worship of God was true, namely Jerusalem. And that when he got done celebrating the special times and seasons, worshiping in Jerusalem, what did he do? On the way home, he was reading the Word of God. He's all alone, uh, and he's reading. And back then, they didn't know how to read silently. Almost nobody did it, or nobody did it. And so, when Philip came to the chariot, he was able to hear what was being read, because the man would have been reading out loud. And wonder of wonders, God has seen this man. God has sent Philip. God has arranged everybody to come together. Wonder of wonders, the man is reading from the single text in the Old Testament that more than any other text brings to mind the life and ministry and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, where we have the statement, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And... This eunuch looks up at Philip and he asks the question that we always ask when we're reading the prophets, which is, who is he talking about? It's a constant difficulty to know that in the prophets. You know, are we talking about today or yesterday? Are we talking about him or someone else? And so he asks the question that would be natural to ask. Who is he speaking about? So here's the eunuch. He's diligently seeking God. He's at the very text by God's providence that more than any other text illuminates the ministry and the messiahship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he asks Philip, who by God's kindness has been brought there, to open up the Scriptures to him. So Philip takes this text of Isaiah 53 and he shows how it points to Jesus Christ. Now, what else did he say? Well, we know one other thing he said. What is it? 
We don't know it because it says he said it. We know it because of what happens. What was the thing he said that isn't explicit, but it's implicit in the text? In other words, what they do shows it. Well, it's very clear that he showed this Ethiopian eunuch that Jesus was sent to die for our sins, to bear God's wrath upon himself, that Jesus was the Messiah. You have to teach that in Isaiah 53. But there's another thing he taught. What is it? Anybody want to take a pot shot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baptism. It's obvious that he taught baptism because the Ethiopian eunuch sees a puddle of water and he says, well, what's to prevent me from being baptized? So obviously, however he taught, he led that Ethiopian eunuch to understand that if he put his faith in Jesus Christ, you understand that putting his faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized were to become a believer, to be born again. Okay? Now... Maybe you want to word it a little bit differently. Feel free. But whatever he taught brought him to the point where he recognized that to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord was for him to be baptized. Now, what am I going to say about this? Just a couple things and I'll be done. Number one, um, we live in a day when there are so many battles over baptism. Everybody fights over baptism. I believe that Babies should be baptized with their dads, all right? That when their dad becomes a Christian, that he should have his children marked, all right? That's what I believe. You don't believe that. You think that that's wrong, that baptism should only be when an individual out in the desert places his faith in Jesus Christ and then just the individual, all right? Now, maybe I haven't said that fairly, but my point isn't to argue it, but rather to say we all do argue over baptism. And you want to, you want to know one of the negative things about that? One of the negative things about that is we get so weary of the arguments that we take away the doctrine of baptism. Okay? Baptism doesn't save you. And so we tend to not call people to be baptized when they believe. And there have been people who have come to faith in this church who I have called them again and again to be baptized, and they have not done it. Now, they're not, the specific person I'm thinking of this morning is not here. Nevertheless, this is a chronic problem when you're in a culture where there's so many wars among Christians over baptism. I think part of the truth of this account of the coming to faith of the Ethiopian eunuch is that it should be a part of the very beginning of the gospel. Not the end, not like three years later, but the very beginning of the gospel that Jesus Christ commanded us to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. This is obedience to the Lord. When you lead other people to know Jesus Christ, you need to lead them to understand that baptism is that mark that they are entering or have entered into the kingdom of God. Baptism is the point at which they are united with the church. When that Ethiopian eunuch went and completed his trip, all right, he went down into Africa, right? And you may be able to make the case that this was, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, all right? And that Ethiopian eunuch went as a part of the church of Jesus Christ. That's how the gospel went down to Ethiopia, all right? He was baptized. He was united to the church of Jesus Christ. It's the initiation rite. All right. And so I think we learn about the obedience of Philip. I think we learn about the diligent seeking of this Ethiopian eunuch 
that even on the way home from his religious pilgrimage, he was reading the Bible and seeking to know God. I think we learn about the nature of doing evangelism, of, of, of witnessing to others, that it's not just to tell them about Jesus, but it's to do it in the context of the Old Testament, pointing forward to the nature of the Messiah. And it's also to be faithful to Jesus' commands that when people place their faith in Jesus Christ, we call them to be baptized. And so, even though we disagree over the nature of baptism, this particular example is very good for those of you who are Baptists. All right? And why? Well, because there's no household, so you don't have to deal with that here. (laughs) Just the Ethiopian eunuch. Of course, he was a eunuch after all, but all right. <laughs> he didn't have a family. All right. <laughs> now, honestly, I have no problem, no problem at all being united with those of you with whom I disagree over whether children should be baptized. None. I have less of a problem coming back from England and from Africa. I think it pleases God. David, what was... Was it the... Uh, yeah, stand up and tell him about it. Now, I want you to know at this point, David's the one that's breaking the rules about time. Afterwards, as I was talking with them, I asked them about baptism in their churches, and I don't know why I asked them whether something had brought it up in the in the meeting or something. Uh, but uh, I came to find out that they practice baptism exactly as we do here at CGS, that they have liberty on time and mode of baptism for all their members, and they found that that was the best way for them to operate uh, and have uh, uh, fellowship together in their community. It's a church of about 600 people and it's just exploding. Uh, On the the Sunday that we were there, there were 200 to 250 people because they sent two-thirds of their church to two separate places to help other churches that were getting started. So they just sent them away on that Sunday to worship with others. So very, very exciting. But it was really a joy to see that there was a like-minded church in Africa and there might actually be Several. I don't know if it was just that Presbyterian church or if the whole Presbyterian yeah, uh, presbytery had done that. So I think it was a denomination. Um, but anyhow, finally, would you notice that this Ethiopian eunuch was willing to be taught? You know, put yourself, you're a rich man. You're like in a black stretch limousine. And some dude comes up next to you, like knocking on your window. Right? And rich people don't like to associate with people that don't have limousines. Well, he didn't just open the window up, but he was humble and said, well, I'm trying to understand. And that's hard for rich people to do. It's very hard for them to say, I'm trying to understand something. All right? Then he allowed this beggar, you know, this nothing, 
who just appeared in the desert and was like running along trying to keep up with the limousine, right? He allowed him to come up into the limousine and teach him. And we need, especially in this community, we need to, to value and to pray to God that we will have teachable spirits. It is very humiliating to have a man preach to us. It's very humiliating to have other people used by God to bring truth into our lives. And so let's not take for granted the fact that this rich eunuch who was able to snap his fingers you know, and have people jump, that he humbled himself, that he came to a nation, he came to a city, he came out into the country and was himself willing to be taught. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For